Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases, and evil spirits were expelled. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, New Living Translation. Don't drink only water. You want to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach, because you are sick so often. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion of the miracles in the Bible. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we're going to conclude our examination about the miracle accounts contained in the Bible. On our last couple of shows, we took a look at some of the objections that are often lodged against the historicity of the miracle accounts, and we talked about the reasons we believe those objections were not persuasive when compared to the evidence that supports the authenticity of the Bible's records. R.D., Would you like to remind us of some of the major points that we discussed? Certainly. One of the big points that we have made in our last couple of episodes when we talked about objections to miracles is that the question of whether or not a miracle occurred at a particular place and time is a historical question. And so, as such, the evidence that supports the historicity of the miracle, the evidence that supports the fact that the miracle did actually occur, is going to be historical evidence. Now, probably the most common objection that is made about the Bible's miracle accounts is that they can't be true or trusted because they involve incidents that violate natural law. So a lot of people start looking to science or to natural laws to start trying to judge whether or not a miracle may or may not have occurred. But natural laws, science, especially operational science, is built around the notion of repetition or repeatability. And because operational science and because natural laws are built around repetition or repeatability, those kinds of laws, those kinds of empirical observations are of much less value when it comes to evaluating origins or past singularities like miracles. Origins, by their very definition, are always going to be unrepeatable. It's the first time something happened, or it's when something began, such as when the earth was created, or life began. And in a similar way, miracles, when they occur, are singular interventions by an almighty God into his natural or created order. So as such, you can't really judge whether or not a miracle occurred by looking to evidence that would come from science or from empirical observations or by trying to judge whether or not a particular natural law was or was not in effect. 
Miracles are singular events. They occur at some point during history. And so the question of whether or not they occur at all is a historical question, not a scientific one. So the validity of the Bible's miracle accounts is grounded in the historical accuracy of the Bible, or at least the historical accuracy of the book in which that particular miracle story is related. Now, we have, for instance, noted several times during this series that the book of Acts contains a description of a number of notable miracles. It contains the description of the ascension of Jesus. It contains the description of a resurrection that the Apostle Paul accomplished. It contains healings in abundance accomplished by either Peter or Paul or others. So the book of Acts contains a number of descriptions of notable miracles. Well, we can't test the accuracy of those miracle accounts per se from the book of Acts, but we can test the historical accuracy of the book of Acts in matters pertaining to such things as geography, culture, politics, economics, whether or not a particular person occupied a particular office in a particular place. We can test a large body of factual material that's contained in the book of Acts, And in fact, the book of Acts has been so tested, and the book of Acts has withstood a considerable amount of scrutiny throughout the years. So what we did was note that if the book of Acts is accurate about its valid history for all of these non-miraculous details, then that constitutes good evidence for the historical accuracy of the writer of the book of Acts, who was Luke, and therefore It constitutes good historical evidence that the miracles as described by Luke also occurred. We have also noted throughout this series, especially in our last episode, that if there is valid historical evidence for the occurrence of one or more miracles, just because someone doubts that evidence is not itself a form of evidence. Doubt is just that. It's doubt. Doubt has to do with a person's evaluation of facts or evidence, but the doubt itself has no evidentiary value, no matter what the credentials are of the person who is exhibiting the doubt. Now, one of the other objections that we talked about is that sometimes critics will try to keep the nucleus of a miracle story intact, but they try to strip that event of its supernatural character. For instance, when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, Some critics will say, well, storms arise and die off very quickly on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus awoke from the back of the boat and came up, but he only seemed to calm the storm. The problem with that sort of approach to that story is that the details of the story itself don't support that particular explanation, because there were seasoned Sea of Galilee fishermen in the boat with Jesus, and they were scared to death for their life, So when Jesus calmed the storm, they actually became more terrified of Jesus than they had been of the storm. And they proclaimed, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? And most of the semi-natural attempts and explanations for the Bible's miracle accounts also suffer when you actually start looking at the details. So that kind of an approach is also not very helpful for people who are trying to understand or make sense of the Bible's miracle stories. Thank you. I think that's helpful to bring us up to the subject that we want to cover today, and one that is itself the subject of some controversy. Do miracles still occur today? It's a seemingly simple question, but I know that you think that it has a number of dimensions. It does have a number of dimensions, so right at the start, 
I need to remind our listeners of something that we have tried to emphasize throughout this discussion, throughout the series of discussions we've had on biblical miracles. In the Bible, miracles are most often termed signs and wonders because the miracles that are described in the Bible always serve some sort of redemptive purpose. I mean, sometimes Bible miracles are of immense, great help or deliverance to God's people, but God always used the accounts of miracles in the Bible as part of a larger plan of redemption. And most often the purpose that those miracles served was to authenticate someone as being a true messenger of God. So, we need to remember that while we find miracles throughout the Bible, the greater number of miracles tend to be clustered around very specific events in redemptive history, such as the exodus from Egypt, when Moses performed a number of miracles when he was convincing Pharaoh to release the Israelites so they could return to their homeland. Well, the last cluster of miracles, the last abundant period of miracles in the Bible was during the lives of Jesus and his apostles. And of course, that was the time when the church, as we know it today, was being established. It was also the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. So, miracles in the Bible are signs and wonders, and they're clustered around specific events in redemptive history. And that's an important point to keep in mind as we start thinking about whether or not miracles are still occurring today. And in our opening scripture from Acts chapter 19, verse 12, we heard about one of the times during the early church when the Apostle Paul performed quite a number of miracles. At one point in his ministry, Paul ministered in the city of Ephesus for a period of three years, yet he was able to heal people with whom he had never personally come in contact. The scripture says that when, quote, handkerchiefs or aprons, unquote, had touched his skin were laid on the sick, the sick were healed. Now handkerchiefs or aprons were very common items made out of cloth or linen in those days. Handkerchiefs were used to wipe sweat from the head, and aprons were tied around the waist to protect the clothing of people working at a task. The scripture is not trying to imply here that the kind of cloth had any power, only to link the item specifically to Paul. It was the power of God and the agency of Paul that provided the healing. The cloth that had touched Paul merely ensured that everyone knew that Paul's agency was the relevant factor. So again, the scripture is just reinforcing that at that time, Paul had been given the gift to perform the miracle of healing, signifying he was an authentic messenger of God, and the message about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was true. Exactly. And we see an important distinction about miracles, especially about whether or not they continue in existence to today. We see an important distinction by looking closely at our two opening scriptures. The very first scripture we heard, which was from Acts, says that God specifically gave Paul the ability to perform miracles, such as you just noted, included the ability to provide healing, even when the person being healed wasn't directly in Paul's immediate presence. Yet in our second scripture from the book of Timothy, we heard that Paul was so concerned about the health and welfare of one of his closest friends and associates, Timothy, that he was trying to figure out how he could help him, even though the two weren't together. So Paul said to Timothy, again, that scripture is from the book of 1 Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, drink a little wine rather than just drink water. Paul obviously was trying to help Timothy 
But it raises the question of why, if Paul had had the ability to heal people who weren't in his immediate presence at that time, as he obviously did earlier in his ministry, as we know from the scripture from the book of Acts, it raises the question that if Paul wanted Timothy to be healed, why was Paul encouraging Timothy to drink a little wine in order to promote healing rather than just drink water? Well, We need to make a couple of observations about that encouragement. First, the water of the first century Roman Empire wasn't always safe to drink. Sometimes they added wine to the water to make it safer for consumption. But it was also thought that wine had some medicinal benefit. We should also note that the wine most commonly available at that time was far lower in alcoholic content than wine today. Wine today is usually around 11 to 12 percent alcohol, whereas first-century wine was more likely around 3 to 4 percent. Those are good notes. Now, we want to go back, though, to the central point that we were talking about, which is that Paul's concern for Timothy was about Timothy's health, and for whatever reason, Paul thought that Timothy might benefit from adding a little wine to his diet. But let's delve a little bit more deeply into the timeline between those two scriptures that we had as our opening scriptures. The first scripture, the one from the book of Acts, came from a time when Paul was ministering in the city of Ephesus, and most scholars believe that that period of time when Paul spent a three-year period in Ephesus was around 53 A.D. to 56 A.D. However, most scholars think that Paul was writing to Timothy when the two were apart around the period of 62 to 64 A.D., So it's fair to say that roughly a decade had passed between the two scriptures that we heard. So given the fact that Paul's observation to Timothy in the letter that he wrote to him was, you need to drink a little wine so you can help your frequent stomach problems, it sure sounds like someone who is trying to give Timothy what we might consider to be some fairly basic medical advice that it sure sounds like at that time, Paul no longer had the ability to perform miracles, the miracle especially of healing people not in his immediate presence. Because if Paul still possessed that ability, because the scripture says, well, Paul used to send one of his handkerchiefs or one of his aprons to someone and they'd be healed. If Paul still had that ability, surely he would have just taken one of his handkerchiefs or aprons and sent it to Timothy and say, Here, use this, and this will provide healing for you. But obviously, at that time, Paul no longer had that gift. Paul no longer was able to heal people. So Paul had to resort to giving conventional medical wisdom to a friend of his as an encouragement or as a way of trying to give him a suggestion for what he could do to help himself feel better. So your point is that even the latter letters in the New Testament appear to indicate that the period of miracles that had marked the lives of Jesus and the apostles had ended. And since Paul's letters to Timothy are some of the latest scriptures to have been recorded, we really don't have any scriptural evidence that there were any more miracles in the Bible performed after that time, do we? No, we don't. And that's a critical observation with respect to whether or not miracles continue to occur today. But it's not the end of the story. I mean, the first conclusion we would draw from the distinction between those two scriptures is that sometime during the apostolic era, the period of miracles actually ended. But I like to think about the fact that a very famous, well-known, prominent Christian scholar named Norman Geisler used to say that there is a difference between the gift of miracles and the fact of miracles. Just to reiterate that, 
Norman Geisler used to say, there is a difference between the gift of miracles and the fact of miracles. Hmm, that sounds interesting. What is the difference between the gift of miracles and the fact of miracles? Well, as we heard in Acts 19.12, God had specifically given power the gift of miracles. He had given Paul the power to perform miracles. God had done that very specifically. But, as our second scripture showed, and we've talked about, apparently that gift had been for only a limited time. Now, we aren't told exactly when that gift ceased operating, but sometime in the period between when Paul ministered in Ephesus and when he was writing to Timothy, and he was writing to Timothy, by the way, from a Roman jail cell, that gift of miracles had ceased. So Paul had initially been given the gift of miracles to authenticate him as a genuine messenger from God and to authenticate the message that Paul was bringing. But within the next decade, God no longer thought that that gift was necessary for the church to continue to progress. Again, God always gave the gift of miracles or caused miracles to happen for a specific redemptive purpose. So sometime between when Paul ministered in Ephesus and when he was writing to Timothy from that Roman jail cell, God no longer thought that the gift of miracles for Paul was necessary for the church to continue to progress. Do you have any thought about what changed in the intervening 10 years? Obviously, God never does anything without having a specific reason. So why was the gift of miracles necessary in the mid-50s AD, but not needed 10 years later? Well, we don't know specifically, but I think we can make some reasonable observations. For instance, in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death and the beginning of the New Testament church, that was when the church was just starting to form. I mean, it was the church was literally in its infancy. It was the very beginning, the absolute very beginning of the Christian church. And so miracles at that very, very early stage seemed to be one of the primary forms of evidence that God was doing something new in redemptive history. That seems to be one of those clusters of miracles that God used as he was superintending redemptive history that period of miracles seems to be one of those periods when God wanted to signal that he was doing something new. And in that particular case, the thing that he was signaling was that he was founding a new church, that the old covenant was giving way to the new covenant. But as the church grew and added members, literally throughout the Roman Empire, other forms of evidence of the truth of the gospel message became available. Such as? Well, as Paul and the other apostles had reached more and more people with the gospel, more and more people had seen the miracles that they had performed, and so those people also testify to what they had seen. In other words, there were more people to carry the message. It wasn't just the initial disciples and apostles who were carrying the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now there were more people who could carry that message. And they could carry that message based on first-hand evidence. Those people had seen all these remarkable miracles that had been performed. So those people could testify that they had seen that miracle. They had heard the testimony. And so they themselves could give testimony about the truth, or at least their belief about the truth, of the gospel message. Now, the second thing, of course, is that the testimony itself about the fact that there was a man, Jesus, if we think about Jesus' death, crucifixion, and subsequent resurrection and ascension, 
If we just think about the fact that there was a man who died and with no outside aid whatsoever, with no external forces coming into play, that man got up out of his grave, walked through a solid stone, walked out into the world for 40 days and walked around talking about his death and subsequent resurrection. If you just think about those particular facts, the facts alone are compelling. Now, another reason that Paul and the other apostles no longer needed the gift of miracles was that as the church grew, it became obvious that the very earliest Christians lived very different lives from many of their pagan neighbors. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Well, as the church grew, a watching world was able to see in the early church that love in action. Well, just like today, being part of a caring and concerned body of believers was very attractive to people. And it was especially attractive in an empire where all kinds of brutality were all too common. So even the people outside the church could see that the church was different from its surrounding society, and the fact that it was different, that persuaded people. Third, more and more people could give testimony that their own lives had been changed by the gospel. You know, even today, probably the most powerful and persuasive evidence for the authenticity of the Christian faith comes from people who testify about the positive difference that their faith has made in their lives. So as more and more people could give that testimony in the first century, then the requirement, the need for someone to be able to perform miracles to authenticate that message, the need for miracles diminished as the power of the testimony of others grew. So the point is that as the church grew, it wasn't necessary for God to keep performing miracles in order to persuade people that the gospel really was the good news that he had sent his only son to bring forgiveness for sins. That's perfectly understandable. But does all that mean that miracles are no longer happening in this world? Well, remember the distinction that we've been talking about. There's a difference between the gift of miracles and the fact of miracles. I personally am prepared to acknowledge that God still does remarkable things within his creation. I strongly believe that there are people who have been healed of diseases and their healing defies conventional medical science. And I've heard the testimony of missionaries who were in grave danger, who were in mortal danger, and they were delivered from that danger in ways that can't be easily explained or even explained at all by human or scientific wisdom. So when I talk about the strong likelihood that the gift of miracles has ceased, what I'm referring to is that we no longer have compelling evidence that any particular person has been vested with the power to perform miracles. I'm not saying that God cannot still provide supernatural deliverance for his people. I know that he can. I think that sometimes he does. But it just means that when and if God chooses to provide that supernatural deliverance, we no longer have any specific messengers from God that hold the same unique position as the original apostles did. What you're saying is that even if remarkable events occur today, which seem to demonstrate supernatural activity, that such events aren't being done by the agency of any particular person who has been given the power to perform miracles as Paul did. If there were such a person, they could actually add to Scripture because they would have the hallmark of being an authenticated messenger of God. Exactly. 
And I think that's one of the reasons Geisler differentiated between the gift of miracles, which God occasionally, during the biblical period, conferred on specific individuals, and the fact of miracles, which may still take place. Miracles, which are God's intervention in his created order, may still happen. Miracles still may occur in fact, but right now, as far as I can tell, we do not have any evidence that any particular person possesses the gift of performing miracles at their discretion. I think that's a valuable distinction. Perhaps, before we close this episode of Anchored by Truth, we should remind the audience why this discussion about miracles is so important. Well, the primary reason, of course, that we wanted to undertake this series about biblical miracles is to encourage people to study the Bible's accounts of miracles, to study the biblical accounts of miracles, and to study them closely. Because as we have noted several times, there are critics who will label the Bible as being a book that's filled with myths or fairy tales. And one of the reasons that they will describe the Bible that way is because of the Bible's miracle accounts. Well, obviously, if the Bible treats miracles as being historical events, and those events could be proven to be fabricated or false, it would cast doubt on the trustworthiness of the Bible. So, one of the big reasons I think people need to inform themselves to think about the Bible's miracle accounts is to be able to talk about the evidence that supports the occurrence of those miracles If for no other reason, then they need to be able to be assured for themselves that the Bible's miracle accounts do not have to constitute a reason or a basis why they have to doubt their faith or why they have to doubt the trustworthiness of the Bible. So by studying the miracle accounts and the historical evidence that supports the historicity of the books that contain them, people don't have to abandon their faith in the Bible's inerrancy or infallibility. Yes, and even more importantly, The fact that God has, at times and places of his choosing, supernaturally intervened in his creation and in history provides evidence of the supernatural character of the Bible's origins. And of course, that's very important because if the Bible does not have a supernatural point of origin, then it would not be much different from any other book that's around today. One of the hallmarks, I believe, of any book that claims to be a special revelation from an Almighty God has to be that that book contains evidence of being of supernatural origin. But in addition to just wanting to make sure that people understand that the Bible can be trusted and it has a supernatural origin, we also need to get in touch with the Bible's miracle accounts so that we can have a more fully developed understanding of God's attributes and character. What you're getting to is that in order for us to worship God properly, we have to know the truth about Him. That reminds me of the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus said, quote, But the time is coming, indeed it is here, now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth." So if we don't know that God has truly performed miracles as part of His redeeming and preserving His people, we can't fulfill that commandment. We can't worship Him in spirit and truth if we have doubts about how He has interacted in history to bring us the special revelation that is in the Bible. Exactly. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our county school boards, since it is so important. 
A Prayer for School Boards All-wise and everlasting Father, we glorify your name, for you alone are worthy to receive worship and praise as the one true God. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of coming into your presence. We do so with glad hearts and earnest hope. Lord, we pray that you would be in our midst this day as we ask for special blessings for our school board. Theirs is the important work of providing guidance to all the schools and learning centers in our community. As issues arise before the board, please help the members to be faithful and diligent to their calling. Grant them wisdom in their deliberations and decision-making. Help them to always focus on the genuine needs of students and schools. Inspire them to be trustworthy stewards of the authority and responsibility that has been placed in their hands. Make your manifest presence felt in their meetings and ensure that they are never satisfied with mediocrity. Illuminate their minds with the brilliance of your word. Encourage them and do not let them grow weary in their tasks. We ask all this with the confidence that you hear our prayers for the sake of your Holy Son. It is in his incomparable name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.